Proverbs chapter 2, and our topic, strange, evil, whorish women. A biblical warning. This is a sermon for young men and uh, young Christian men, and uh, it applies to women as well, but the, the Proverbs focus on men. I think men are uh, more sloppy in this area and need more encouragement. But let me read some of Proverbs chapter 2. <clears throat> My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield of those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity, and every good path. <clears throat> when wisdom enters your heart, knowledge is pleasant to the soul. Discretion will preserve you. Understanding keep you. To deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, and from those who leave the paths of uprightness. To walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing good and delight in the perversity of the wicked, whose ways are crooked, and who are devious in their paths, to deliver you from the immoral woman. And the old King James, I believe, has strange woman there. From the seductress who flatters with her words, who forsakes the companion of your earth and forgets the covenant of her God, and her house leads down to death, and her past to the dead. None who go to her return, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you may walk in the way of goodness and keep to the paths of righteousness, for the upright will dwell in the land, and the blameless will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the earth, and the unfaithful will be uprooted from it. One of the greatest dangers to young Christian men, <clears throat> are evil, pagan, or apostate, and I, I went through the, all of the Proverbs, and the warnings are against heathen women and apostate women. A lot of them are against apostate women. <clears throat> Immoral women. Pagan women have caused multitudes of professing Christians, young Christian men, and yes, even old men as well, to fall into scandalous sin and even apostasy. They have caused many older professing Christian men to commit adultery and abandon their Christian wives and families. <clears throat> I know, uh, in, in the past 40 years, I know seven different ministers who've committed adultery. Now, some of them I knew personally, and some of them I just knew about, but I know of seven that committed adultery and abandoned their families. <clears throat> so they've caused many to commit adultery and abandon their Christian families and their wives. They're even one of the main reasons that ministers of the gospel fall and are de deposed from the ministry. I went to Reformed Episcopal Seminary, our professor of theology, which died probably 35 years ago. Uh, he, um, he kept tabs on what happened to men after they graduated. And he said that one of the, the biggest things that caused men to fall was, was adultery. <clears throat> now, given these observations, we would do well to look at what the Bible has to say about such women and the warnings and inspired wisdom of Solomon regarding these dangers, uh, regarding these dangers. And, of course, Solomon is speaking to, in a sense, his sons. Um, however, this is the inspired word of God, so it applies to every Christian male. And it does, by way of application, it can apply to young Christian women as well. <clears throat> but the focus in the Bible is on Christian men. I think men are a little bit more uh, guided by... Uh, the lust of the eyes and things like that than women. Although our culture is getting so bad, they're not a whole big difference now. Before we analyze Solomon's teaching, there are a few introductory remarks to consider. The first regards the interesting way that Solomon teaches godliness, sanctification or personal holiness. The Apostle Paul <clears throat> almost always places the negative first, do not do this, don't lie, don't steal, don't do this. Get rid of, put off this sinful behavior with the positive. Replace the sinful behavior with this biblical counterpart. 
Okay, don't steal anymore. Get a job, get a good job so you can have enough money to help others. Don't lie, but speak the truth in love. Speak the truth to your brethren, etc. He'll talk about the negative and he'll price it with the positive. Paul is writing to churches primarily composed of Gentiles who converted to Christ from paganism. So his emphasis is on getting rid of a pagan way of thinking and living and replacing it with a biblical, godly way of thinking and living. Okay, people who were raised as pagans, they have to learn to get rid of these old sinful habits and replace them with godly habits. Now Solomon, however, he is teaching to covenant people who have been long established in the truth, and therefore he begins with the positive, know, keep, treasure, God's commandments, and the applications of these commandments that you have learned from your parents and elders, and do not be seduced by the pagan way of living or thinking. You see the difference. <clears throat> and that's simply teaching the same truths with a slightly different emphasis due to the audience, the original audience. <clears throat> Both methods of ill-concating biblical ethics in living a holy life are rooted on God's word, especially the moral law, but there is a different emphasis on how to arrive at the same goals. People raised as Christians, strict Christians, real Christians, not Roman Catholics, have an advantage in that they are starting out with a correct way of thinking, if they've been taught the truth. So the emphasis is on maintaining what has already been learned. Look, my son, you've been taught the truth here. You know what the truth is. You've got to hang on to it. You've got to keep it. Don't depart from it. The second thing to think about is the reason that so much of the book of Proverbs is focused on the incredible dangers of pagan or apostate wicked women. It, you find it throughout the whole book. And you'll, you'll hear a lot of these passages. <coughs> Satan takes advantage of a natural lawful desire that has been corrupted by sin. A desire to have a woman is built into the fabric of our nature as men, and this desire is easily corrupted and twisted if we are not strict, diligent, and careful to obey God's word on this topic. Okay, if you fall into some bad habit like smoking cigarettes, when you first smoke a cigarette, it's gross, and you can't stand it, you have to develop a taste for it. When you drink whiskey or beer or something, when you first taste it, you don't go, oh, that tastes great. You have to develop a taste for it. But men have a natural desire for beautiful women. And Satan wants to take that and twist it. So it's, it's a much easier area for men to fall. In addition, due to the fall, women have been corrupted in such a manner that their sinful tendency is to try to lead men. Man's sinful tendency since the fall is to be irresponsible and allow themselves to be led by a woman. Now, I'm not going to go into the exegesis, but it's in that passage, uh, uh, her desire shall be for you, and so forth. You have to look at the Hebrew and get into, into the meaning of the Hebrew. But it's clearly that one of the tendencies of the fall that God emphasizes is women will try to usurp men's authority, and men are happy to let their authority be usurped. Men want to be irresponsible. It's easy for women to lead men around. Adam sinned and ate the forbidden fruit. Because he wanted to please Eve, his wife. He followed her lead. She was tempted by the devil. She was tricked. She was fooled. Because she didn't, have, she didn't trust in God's word. She listened to the devil and gave the, the, submitted the, the, what God had said, his command, to an empirical test. Adam simply did, ate the fruit because he wanted to please his wife. Moreover, Wicked, beautiful women are aware of their alluring abilities due to the lust of the eyes and the sinful flesh. They take full advantage of it by their dress, makeup, perfume, alluring eyes, and flattering speech. Women know how to dress to where men are going to be staring at them and want to talk to them. That's a fact. Well, that's the introduction. Let's look at uh, number one, Roman numeral one, the spiritual foundation. 
Solomon's, and I've, I've entitled this, Solomon's Tactics of Resistance. Number one, uh, Roman numeral one, the spiritual foundation. <clears throat> Solomon's foundation of resistance and victory over this temptation begins with a true knowledge, faith in, and love of the truth. In particular, God's moral law as it speaks to this issue. And the learning how to apply this truth to real life situations. And that's what wisdom is all about. You have to have knowledge. You have to know what the truth is. But you have to learn how to apply it to daily living. And that's wisdom. I'm going to read uh, Psalm 2, 1 to 12 again. So if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom, apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding. So you have to receive, believe, understand, discern. If you seek her as silver and search her as for her hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the path of justice and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity in every good path. When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you to deliver you from the evil way. And then here's Proverbs 7, 1 to 5. And I'm giving you things in the context of warnings about evil woman. And it's very similar. It says this. this 7, 1 to 5. My son, keep my words. Treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live. And my law as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablets of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call understanding your nearest kin. In order that they may keep you from the immoral woman. From the seductress who flatters with her words. So before Solomon even speaks to the issue of this temptation and the great dangers of evil, whorish women. He focuses our attention on the need to have wisdom and understanding. Every man will, will endure such temptations. You need to understand, have understanding and wisdom on how to deal with these temptations. The way to obtain wisdom is as follows. First, Learning and believing God's word is necessary. So you have to learn and believe God's word. 2.1. Receive my words. 2.2. Incline your ears to wisdom. 2.5. Find the knowledge of God. 2.6. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. <clears throat> the word of God is to be learned, placed in one's heart, and cherished. If you've got a particular problem, memorize the scriptures related to that problem. And meditate on them and recite them and think about that in situations of temptation. 2.16. Excuse me. Uh, 2.1b. And it's also found in 7.1b. Treasure my commands within you. 2.4. Seek the discernment and understanding that God's word gives. Seek her as silver. Search for her as for hidden treasures. So true knowledge and the proper understanding of reality as interpreted by God's word and ethics is totally dependent on learning the word of God. It, of course, is the source of salvation and it defines ethics. And Van Til would say, we are to think God's thoughts after him. That's wisdom, knowledge. We must receive the word of God with true faith. We must study it, learn it, cherish it, place it in our hearts. We, mu we must have our minds saturated with scriptures so that we know what to think, how to respond to temptations, what to do in every circumstance. We are to think God's thoughts after him. We are to analyze everything according to the Christian world and life view. Now, when I was in seminary, we had a, a, a black fellow. He was a good artist, and he had a picture he made. And it was a beautiful woman, very beautiful, looking into the mirror. 
but half of her was a beautiful woman and the other half was like this like alien demonic creature <laughs> and he did that you, you have to keep in mind these women are not for your good they want to drag you down to the pit of hell you have to look at things according to the biblical world and life view you have to and then second we must obey God's word and learn to apply it to daily life to specific situations and temptations Proverbs 2 2 apply your heart to understanding incline your ear to wisdom 7 1 keep my words 7 2 keep my commands and live so the Word of God must be believed it must be learned and studied it must be placed in the heart and cherished and what is the goal and Jay Adams is great on this the goal is is to where you have that heart saturated with the proper Word of God the scriptures that apply to that specific situation whenever you encounter that situation you do the right thing over and over and over again because you're following the biblical world and life view you're putting it into practice into daily life and then you develop a habit of doing that to where you automatically do the right thing when you're in a situation of temptation do you remember Joseph he's working in a household the guy's really beautiful wife there's nobody around and she's like hey Joseph let's let's have some fun Joseph turns and runs and he leaves his uh, outer jacket in her hands he didn't even have to think twice he knew what to do automatically he didn't sit there and toy with it in his mind well should I do this she's really hot nobody's gonna know he didn't do that he automatically did the right thing <clears throat> So we are to put it into practice on a daily basis. As one puts off unbiblical thoughts and practices repeatedly and replaces them with lawful, God-honoring alternatives, one will develop godly habits, habits that glorify and honor God. One will become accustomed to obedience. Third, we are to pray for God to enlighten our minds teach us the full meaning of his commandments, remove any false views on internal or internal opposition to God's word, and enable us to faithfully and habitually obey what God requires. Proverbs 2.3 says, Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding. David and Solomon sought wisdom from God. And they sought it through meditation on God's word, and they prayed to God for to apply that word to their hearts. Psalm 36, 9, in your light we see light. Colossians 2, 2 to 3, that their hearts may be encouraged to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We must ask God to teach us by his Spirit. We must cry as newborn babes after the sincere milk of the word. 1 Peter 2.2 2. Remember Solomon. He didn't pray for, you know, I would, I, he didn't say, I'm going to be the richest man in the world. I want to have, you know, this and that. He said, just give me wisdom. And he got it. He obtained it from God. As you read God's word, stop and pray over it and meditate on it. Don't just simply, you know, read it. Oh, I got to get this out of the way. Uh, let me read my cup three chapters, and I'm, I'm on my way. No, give yourself time to think about it, to meditate on it, to pray over it, so you understand exactly what you're reading, and you want those things that are really critical, especially as they apply to you and your particular temptations. Those are the things you want to memorize and put them in your heart. <coughs> Solomon said in Proverbs one seven, "The fear or reverence of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge." But fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of God which flows from a belief, trust, love, and reverence of him through Christ is the foundation of true knowledge. For a reverential trust of, in God causes one to trust and rely on the word of God and reject anything that contradicts God's word. One must believe in order to know anything correctly. You, you must believe in order to know anything correctly, especially in spiritual and ethical contexts. Now, obviously, 
an unbeliever can say, yeah, that's a rock or that's a brick. Or I, I know how to nail a two by four together with another two by four. Those are surface knowledge. Those are external things. They're really not that significant. We're talking about important spiritual matters here. Biblical wisdom takes this knowledge and it applies it correctly to real life situations. Where there is no fear of God, <clears throat> there is no real reverence for the moral law. Where there is no reverence for God and knowledge of God's word, there can be no real wisdom. And that's why you have these people, you know, running our government, who have all these PhDs and they teach at Harvard and all these things. And uh, these people have been in government for 30, 40 years. And they're all imbeciles doing the most incredibly stupid things. Because you need to believe in God and fear God and believe in his word to have real wisdom. The fear of God is a fundamental necessity on which a sanctified and prosperous life must be founded. Okay, so that's Roman numeral number one. Number two, Roman numeral number two. And I'm simply following exactly what Solomon is teaching us. <clears throat> number two, know your enemy. The pagan or the apostate woman. He focuses on both. There are two temptations to Israelite men. Canaanites, pagan women. We read the story of Samson. He had an attraction to very beautiful Philistine women. And then, of course, apostate women. And some scholars speculate that maybe Delilah was simply an apostate woman who was in league with the Canaanites. We don't know. I think she was probably a Philistine. After looking at the foundation of our sanctification, Solomon turns his attention to evil women who are the downfall of multitudes of men who profess the true religion. His description should stand as a sober warning to young men to stay far away from them at all times. <clears throat> now, frequently in the Proverbs, they are called strange women. Two Hebrew words are used here. Zor, and the other one is Nekri, Nakri, which have the same basic meaning. They, they, uh, the first one, Z-O-O-R, that's how you pronounce it, is used very frequently, and the other one's only used a few times. But they both basically mean the same thing. A strange woman can be a foreign, alien, or pagan woman. A Canaanite, a Hittite, <coughs> an unbelieving Gentile who practices a false idolatrous worldview. <coughs> They're strange. They're alien. They're not Christians. You have no business being with them. The Israelites were always taught to completely avoid and shun heathen women. That is, women with a false world and life view. Here's what Deuteronomy 7, 2-5 says. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall co conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take your daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall utterly destroy their altars, cut down their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, and burn their carved images with fire. <clears throat> the prohibitions of covenants with the heathens and marriages with the heathen are there to preserve one's covenant relationship with God. God's saying, look, you're going into the land, a beautiful land full of milk and honey, beautiful, grapes, figs. But I'm telling you, you've got to destroy the heathen. You can't make covenants with them. And whatever you do, don't let your sons marry their daughters and their daughters marry your sons because that'll lead totally to apostasy. That'll lead to idolatry. That'll lead to my judgment against you. Don't do it! And they didn't listen, did they? The history of Israel up until the well, uh, Assyria's destruction, 722, Babylonian captivity, uh, 587, was one of intermarriage and idolatry. <clears throat> the assumption is that men will be tempted to compromise their covenant obligations toward God in order to please their wives. The wisdom of this command, which presupposes the radical danger of foreign women, has been borne out by Israel's history. 
And here's just one example. I could have looked up 10, but here's just one. <coughs> Judges 3, 5 to 8. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and served Baal, the Baals, and Asherahs. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushah, Rishathaim, eight years. The non-Christian women, no matter how beautiful, attractive, nice, friendly, alluring, and cooperative on the surface, is a covenant child of Satan. And without even being consciously aware of it, will be pulling you away from covenant faithfulness to God. A woman can be a beautiful heathen. She may not self-consciously know that she's a covenant child of Satan. She may not self-consciously be saying, I'm going to drive this guy away from the faith. She may seem very friendly and nice. But because she belongs to Satan, because her world and life view is contrary to the word of God, she will, by nature, draw you away from Christ in the Bible. Sometimes the pull away from God is blatant, active, obvious, and strong. They wear their opposition to God, Jesus Christ and the Bible, like clothes on their sleeve. They want you to abandon Jesus Christ and return to the world. They want you to place them above God and accept their world and life view because they are wedded to idolatry and hedonism. Oh, Bob, don't you love me more than God? Don't you love me more than Jesus Christ? And the answer should be, heck no, I'm out of here. No, I don't love you more than Christ. But that's what they want. They want you to worship them. And they want you to follow their world and life view, their false gods. Such women are clearly evil, and their love for you is not a holy biblical love, but a worldly, pagan, emotional love. True love always puts Christ first, and obedience to his law first. And that's exactly what it says in 1 Corinthians 13. True love for our fellow man is founded upon and grows out of our love for God through Christ. Once love is severed from our love of Christ and obedience to his infallible word, then it becomes a humanistic, rebellious, autonomous, antinomian love. So don't tell me you love me if you want me to abandon Christ. Don't tell me you love me if you want me to not follow God's moral law. Don't tell me you love me if you want me to not be faithful to the local church. You see the dangers. The Christian man who is married to a pagan, who out of an emotional bond or emotional feelings of love, submits to a pagan wife, or a professing Christian wife who is, an, who is evil and not really a Christian, there's plenty of them out there, is not really loving his wife in the biblical sense of the term. That's what's so ironic about this whole thing. The guy out of love submits to his wife. The guy out of love, and I'm talking about emotional love, attachment, uh, does all these unbiblical things to please his wife. That's not biblical love. That's not real love. That's not the kind of love that God commands in his word. The moment you sever love from God's commandments and what God requires to put Christ first, the moment you do that, that's not love anymore. That's pagan love. That's satanic love. He is catering to Satan, to heathenism, to human autonomy, to the evil world system. Compromise with the world, the flesh, and the devil is not biblical love, but self-deception. It's foolish. It's wicked. The professing Christian man who compromises biblical doctrine and Christian principles or ethics to please a pagan wife or a professing Christian woman who is evil and unregenerate is not really loving Christ as, uh, not really loving his wife as Christ loved the church. Now, why do I say that? Well, I've been around a long time. I've done a lot of marital counseling. I've seen a lot of men go apostate over the years. And uh, I can give, I know two examples of men who were married to women who simply weren't really Christians. And they really didn't care about the Bible at all. 
And uh, what they would do is one committed adultery, and then she gave her husband a laundry list. If you do all these things, I'll get back with you. And uh, leave the leave the strict Reformed church. We'll go to a big giant church that's liberal that doesn't care what I do. Uh, this homeschooling stuff and Christian school, we'll get rid of that too. Uh, you have to buy me a new car. I'm serious. There was a whole laundry list. Then there was another guy. It was very similar. You got to let me hang out with my pagan friends. You got. We got to move back to where my pagan friends are, so I can hang out with my pagan friends. Uh, we, we no more Christian school. The public schools are fine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, you know what's going on here, and the men give in to that because there's emotional love. There's emotional attachment. Do they love their wives? And the answer is absolutely not. Following Satan is not love. Giving into sin is not love. It's satanic. And it destroys their wives. And of course, if they have any children, it'll destroy the children as well. The best thing to do is be totally biblical. Be nice. Be friendly. Be totally biblical. But if the wife leaves, let them leave. He is actually contributing to her pagan delusions, her wicked thinking, her sinful lifestyle. He's keeping the wide road that leads to destruction and eternal damnation clean and clear of any obstacles. He is supporting her in her sin and rebellion against God. If he really loved her biblically, he would never compromise biblical teaching or principles one iota. Now, I'm not saying being mean. You can be nice, but don't compromise. Would Paul compromise? No. Would Christ compromise? No. Would Peter compromise on these issues? No. We shouldn't compromise one iota. If you're, real, if, you're, if you're stuck with a pagan, or you're stuck with a woman who's really not a Christian, and he's trying to pull you down, you don't compromise. If they leave, they leave. You be nice. You can be gentle. You can speak the truth in love. You can have your speech seasoned with salt, so to speak. But don't compromise one iota. Because once you start compromising, then you fulfill what Solomon says about what happens to men who are married to pagans in the book of Proverbs over and over and over again. Remember, the book of Proverbs takes God's moral law and is simply applying it to daily life. <coughs> he is supporting her in her sin and rebellion. If he really loved her biblically, he would never compromise biblical teaching or principles at all. Most heathen women under those circumstances, would leave and divorce their Christian husbands, which would be the best outcome for the Christian. And we've, I remember counseling, you know, the whole elders counseling a guy whose wife was a professing Christian, but she clearly wasn't. Uh, by her behavior, it was obvious. Her habitual behavior, she had left her husband and so forth and stolen some money and stuff. And the advice was, don't compromise. If she leaves, she leaves. And what did he do? He gave in to her. And now his whole family's heathen. All, all, all the children are pagan now. They're all pagans. He didn't love his wife biblically. He thought he was loving his wife by giving in to her. He thought he was doing the right thing. But that's pagan love. That's the world's love. Biblical love never compromises with sin. Biblical love never compromises the biblical world and life view. Ever. Under such circumstances, Paul says, the Apostle Paul, writing under divine inspiration, says, let the unbeliever depart. Let him leave. Don't try to stop them. Let them leave. Do not try to reconcile. Let them leave. Good riddance. Now you are free to marry a Christian. Once married, the Christian cannot divorce the unbeliever. And he must love her biblically. But if she leaves, Paul says, let her leave. You're better off. Bill Gothardite and the Protestant Reformed heresy on marriage must be rejected. This idea that you can't get a divorce for any cause. Or, and if you do divorce, you can never remarry. No, Paul says you're free. And the vast majority of commentators acknowledge that that means you're, you're free now to remarry. You're free from them, but you're free to remarry. If you're not free to remarry ever, who would want to leave? <laughs> who, would, who, would, who would want to leave? allow them to leave. You try to keep them. 
you try to compromise. But no, God says, get, let them go. They're pagans. Learn wisdom. Here's Paul's warning in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? And what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The unbeliever's life is centered on self and sinful pleasures. She's an idolater. That doesn't, she doesn't have to necessarily be bowing, bowing down to the Virgin Mary or Baal, but unbelievers are idolaters. They don't put God first. The believer's life is focused on Christ in the Bible. He lives for godly dominion. What can I do to serve Christ? What can I do to extend the kingdom? The heathen's treasure is only here on earth where moth and rust destroys. The Christian's treasure is in heaven. The pagan has this world's thinking and values. The Christian loves Christ and his holy law. There is a radical antithesis in philosophy, beliefs, priorities, values, ethics. The word strange as in strange woman can also mean profane. What does that which is separated under God and holy have to do with that which is unholy, defiling, profane, satanic? And the answer is nothing. The answer is nothing. Think about it. Are you ready to destroy your life? Are you ready to pick a position that could lead you straight to hell? Now in our pluralistic culture, where all religions are treated as equally true and equally false, and where relativism reigns. The Christian idea of a total separation based on a radical antithesis between good and evil, Christ's people and Satan's people, is very unpopular. And of course the trend in the past hundred years, uh, uh, Jews have been intermarrying with Gentiles on a, a regular basis, Roman Catholics intermarry with Protestants, because nobody really believes anything, they're all essentially pagan. Uh, and it's it's a complete disaster. But this is a crucial doctrine relating to maintaining faithfulness and covenant continuity. We are to live in peace with our pagan neighbors as much as is possible. We are to be friendly, kind, helpful when possible. We are not to have fellowship, but we are not to have fellowship or close friendships with them or business partnerships with them. And her children must not hang out with their children. Christian children must never set foot in a state school or a Muslim school or a Jewish school or a Roman Catholic school, period. And obviously the most intimate of all relationships, marriage, must be between Christians who agree on doctrine. If you're a five-point Calvinist and you believe in the regular principle, you don't go marry an Arminian Baptist or a charismatic who preaches a false gospel and believes in a false gospel. You just don't do that. Usually people who do that end up adopting a false gospel themselves. Now, the biblical description of such women, uh, a second kind of woman to avoid in the Proverbs is the apostate woman. That is a woman who may claim to be a Christian, but in reality is not. <clears throat> the biblical description uh, of such a woman fits pagan women as well. Could be a woman who openly left behind Christianity. She's described in Proverbs 2 as one who forgets her covenant with God, verse 17. She has forsaken her husband, either secretly living in an adulterous relationship or by unfaithful divorce, unlawful divorce, verse 17. Here's the description of her. These are the words taken directly out of the text. She's perverse, wicked, crooked, devious, immoral, verses 14 to 16. She walks in the way of darkness, verse 13. Rejoices in doing evil, verse 14. Delights in perverse behavior, verse 14. Her mouth is called a deep pit, Proverbs twenty-two fourteen. 14. Her lips drip honey and her mouth is smoother than oil, Proverbs 5, 3. 
She flatters with her tongue, Proverbs 6.24, in order to seduce her prey, Proverbs 6.24 and 2.16. She is identified by Scripture as a seductress, Proverbs 2.16 and 6.24. She uses her beauty to seduce and her tongue to flirt and flatter. In Proverbs 6.25 we read, Do not lust after her, beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. In Proverbs 23, 27 to 28, we read, A harlot is a deep pit, and a seductress is a narrow well. She also lies in wait as for a victim, and increases the unfaithful among men. And in Proverbs 22, 14, we read, The mouth of an immoral woman is a deep pit. He who is abhorred by God, the Lord will fall there. Alluring speech. Beautiful faces. Beautiful attire. Perfumed. Beautiful. Sexy. A seductress. Don't be fooled by it. Don't go near it. Avoid it at all costs. Don't be fooled. You know, for every beautiful, solid Christian woman, there's probably 500 pagan women. But you have to focus on the Christian women, as we'll see. In chapter 7, we learn that outwardly she is very religious. She has peace offerings, and she's paid her vows. Yet she appeals to men to come to her house and commit adultery. She's an apologist for immorality and sin. Satan, Paul says, appears as an angel of light. The strange woman comes full of beauty and enticements. To follow the strange woman is a rejection of God's plan. It is a repudiation of biblical marriage. To follow the pagan or apostate woman is a satanic reversal of the ordinance of marriage and the dominion mandate. There's no real biblical love. The unholy union is unholy. Mutual helpfulness for godly dominion cannot really occur. And the continuation of a godly seed is almost always extinguished. So for a moment of pleasure... You destroy your whole future. You destroy your walk with God. It's not worth it. And then we come to Roman numeral number three, and I'm take, I've taken all these out of the Proverbs. <clears throat> know the consequences. Know the consequences. Solomon warns men to avoid the strange, whorish, pagan woman by noting the disastrous consequences of going with such women. In Proverbs 2, 18-19, we read, For her house leads down to death. And her paths to the dead. None who go to her return, nor do they regain the paths of life. Proverbs six twenty seven to twenty nine and thirty two says this: Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Proverbs 5, 1a, 3 to 6. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Verse 3. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. <clears throat> but in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood. Sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell. Lest you ponder her path of life, her ways are unstable. You do not know them. Now, these descriptions are all couched, of course, in poetic terms that all point to serious declension, apostasy, judgment, and death. The path of cleaning to pagan women is a path of going down, down, downward spiritually. The heathen or apostate woman is said to lead their, the way, and then you follow. You notice that. They're leading the way. The man who backslides... He's following in their path. <clears throat> it is very easy to go down and walk in darkness because she has her satanic claws in you emotionally and sexually. It is a slippery, slimy path on a steep incline, and thus you go down, down, down to the darkness, to perdition, destruction, and death. When you take a pagan woman into your bosom, you take upon yourself a spiritual cancer. You join yourself to a child of Satan, a woman of darkness, a follower 
of their evil world system. Unless repentance comes, this sin is spiritually fatal. The coming judgments and calamities are certain and unavoidable. It is a direct tendency for complete apostasy and the extinguishing of a good spiritual direction and a holy disposition. The heathen wife will hate a good Reformed church, will strongly discourage Christian fellowship, as well as the keeping of the Sabbath holy. Her commitment is not on heavenly thinking, but earthly pleasures. And her goal in life is not on Christ's kingdom or godly dominion or the glorifying of God, but on hedonistic pleasures. She's going to want pagan friends. She's going to want heathen fellowship. She's going to want pagan fun. She will continue to walk in darkness, and her darkness will darken your whole household. Is that what you want? Because she's hot looking? You want to destroy your whole life for a little bit of pleasure? When there's beautiful Christian women, if you're just patient and take the time to go find one? The Jews who intermarried became wicked and apostate through syncretism. They adopted the pagan culture, an apostate worldview around them. And therefore, even though they gave lip service to Yahweh, they in reality were idolaters who God regarded as disloyal covenant breakers. <coughs> Intermarriage led to the apostasy and complete destruction of the northern tribes in 722 B.C. by Assyria. Intermarriage led to apostasy in the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was conquered and carried away captive by Babylon in 587 B.C. You see, intermarriage leads, the history of the Old Testament, intermarriage always leads to idolatry. Because when you place your wife above obeying God, it's just a, a logical step to start worshiping her gods as well and following her world and life view. God warns us about the consequences of sin so that we keep ourselves from making incredibly unwise, unbiblical, stupid decisions that are deadly. The way of intermarriage leads to apostasy and even death. <clears throat> there are the covenant sanctions that come with syncretism and apostasy. And there's the eternal death and hell in the hereafter. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but we're told in Genesis, the book of Genesis, that it was the intermarriage of the godly line with the heathen that led to such a debauch, uh, the culture became so debauched and violent that God decided to completely overthrow their godless culture with a worldwide flood. Remember, the narrative begins with intermarriage. Did the intermarriage lead to a bunch of pagans becoming godly? No. It led to a bunch of people who were of the godly line becoming pagan. Because of her sinful nature, it's easy to fall into sin. It's easy to go backwards. It takes work and diligence and prayer and Bible reading and Bible memorization to go forwards. It's easy to fall back. Only Noah and his family were faithful. Everyone else died in the stormy waters and was cast into hell. Our Lord Jesus Christ deters us from human autonomy and sinful pleasures by telling us to consider the eternal torments they lead to. Matthew 5, 28, 29, where the worm die, does not die and the fire is not quenched. The bad influence of strange woman on the Jews was so bad and had such devastating consequences that this command often became intertwined with prohibitions on idolatry. You see that pattern throughout the Old Testament. Look upon the pagan woman, the strange woman, the apostate woman with the eyes of faith. Oh, so sexy, so beautiful, so alluring. No. Look at them like Alien or something. That movie Alien. That's what they really are. They're demonic. Now let's have some, some applications to wrap this up. <clears throat> what we have discussed must be learned, memorized, placed in our heart, thoroughly believed, and then put into daily practice. Note what Solomon says immediately after his teaching on wicked pagan women in Proverbs 2, 20-22. So, you may walk in the way of goodness and keep to the paths of righteousness. For the upright will dwell in the land, and the blameless will remain in it. 
but the wicked will be cut off from the earth and the unfaithful from will be uprooted from it. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened to the Jews who intermarried and followed idols. That's exactly what happened to them. This inspired wisdom of Solomon is to guide and direct us in that which is good, biblical, and edifying. To walk in the path of righteousness. Well, let us make some obvious applications of what we've already learned. First, we must keep these teachings in our minds and meditate on them every day. So, uh, as we go about our business, if a young Christian man attends a college or he works at a large corporation, he's going to be around a large number of beautiful pagan women that are whorish women. This is not 1940. This is not 1950. Now, there were whorish women back then, but now they're everywhere. Things have gotten worse. Therefore, the young man must keep focused on this teaching and not mingle or speak to these women except as our business requires it. <clears throat> we have to focus on what is on the inside, not on the outside. If girls flirt, or seek your company, or ask you out, then identify yourself explicitly as a Christian and tell them plainly that you are not allowed to date unbelievers or be unequally yoked. And if you do speak to them, your focus must be on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Bible and God. Believe me, they won't want to go out with you after you do that. <laughs> the true light will drive away the darkness. <clears throat> and I'm not advocating dating evangelism, which is deadly, but only what to say in a public setting when such women approach you. Be prepared. I've worked in places where there were a lot of beautiful women. <clears throat> and uh, this actually happened. This happened many, many years ago. I'm an old, old now, but uh, a very beautiful woman came up to me and basically asked me to, you know, hey, let's get together and have sex, basically. And I said, look, I'm married. I got kids. I got young babies. I'm married. Get lost. She said, I don't care if you're married. That's what she said. I don't care. I said, well, I'm a Christian. Get lost. I, you know, don't talk to me. There are pagan women that are loose. There are pagan women that like to prey on married men. You have to be on your toes if you're in the workforce and you're around a lot of women. <clears throat> Pagish horse women in our culture have become like pagan men. They are predators. They are godless fornicators and adulterers. Solomon goes into some detail about these tactics so you will not be fooled by their friendliness and their flatteries. They do not have your interests in mind. They will tempt you to sin, and they will drag you down to hell. Remember once again what biblical love is. It always obeys the word of God. It always puts Christ first. It never compromises with evil. Second, we must keep, keep godly company and avoid all places and situations where temptation may occur. You should not go to places where pagan whorish women go to meet men such as a bar or a disco or a nightclub. Do not go to the beach on spring break, but go on the off-season when young women are absent. Avoid all instances of temptation, so you do not get into a situation where you are snared by the devil. Hang out with the saints that are good examples, that are strong in the faith, that will hold you accountable if you start on the path that is dangerous or unbiblical. Now, when I was in seminary, there was an Irish pub down the street from the seminary. And they served, they had a, you could buy a whole pitcher of Guinness Stout, which a very reasonable price. If you got five Christian men together and you want to get a pitcher and have a drink and then leave, that's fine. But don't ever go there by yourself. Especially if you're young and attractive. They're pagan women. They're, pagan women go to bars to meet men so they can fornicate. Pagan men go to bars to meet women so they can fornicate. <clears throat> the fornication rates, by the way, among professing Christian young people today are exceptionally high because they place themselves in situations of temptation. One must not follow our pagan cultural practice of dating, where young people are not chaperoned. 
and one must not kiss and neck with a girl because such behavior is a form of foreplay. And foreplay tends to lead to other things. Paul says that, uh, that before marriage a man ought not to touch a woman, 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Believe me, if you get married to a woman, you'll have plenty of time to do the fun sexual things. But before you're married, those things are off base. They're off limits, totally. And don't place yourself in temptation at all. Third, the solution to pagan whorish women and temptations to sexual immorality is found in seeking a godly Christian woman and getting married to her. Paul says this, and this is from, um, <clears throat> oh, I forgot to write it down. It's 1 Corinthians. I believe it's, oh, it's 6, 18, and 7, 1 and following. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Chapter 7. Now concerning the things which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the man render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent, that's mutual consent, for a period of time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say to the unmarried and the widows, it is good for you to remain even as I. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. You're young. You're tempted. Your hormones are raging. What do you do? Find a good Christian wife. That's what you do. Paul's principle of sanctification is to avoid the evil by doing the good. The biblical alternative. This means that our whole view of women and sexuality must totally follow the scriptures. A Christian man is to find a Christian wife. And this means he should go only go where there are solid Christian women. And the best ways to find them is in church. Attend church and the various activities associated with the church, such as Bible studies, Christian seminars, etc., he must prepare to establish a household by picking a calling, finishing school if school is necessary, saving up a chunk of money to purchase a house. He must show responsibility, and he must exhibit the traits of a solid leader spiritually and economically to make himself attractive to a godly female. A woman should never marry a man with the hope that someday he may change and become solid in responsibility. You make sure that that's the case before you get married. Because most of the time, if they're not solid in responsibility before marriage, they're not going to become that somehow after marriage. A man should never marry a woman hoping that perhaps someday she will start acting like a Christian. Everything must be sorted out before an engagement takes place. The goal is not romance, even though romance is fine in certain contexts after you're married. The goal is godly dominion and the continuation of a godly Christian line into the future. So we see that the best way to avoid a pagan, whorish, evil woman who leads men into apostasy and death is to focus solely on finding a godly, dedicated Christian woman who will be a helpmeet in serving Christ by establishing a Christian family and household. Now that's all very simple. It's all very logical. It's all very biblical. Solomon is applying the law of God to society. He's applying the law of God to daily life. But you gotta obey it. You gotta learn it. You gotta obey it. And the problem is, is that young people, you know, young Christians, this pagan practice of dating and necking and all this stuff leads to fornication. It's a disaster. But stay away from pagan women. Find a good Christian wife. Christian women, find a good Christian man. So you can glorify God and have a happy, blessed marriage. You, believe me, you'll be rewarded for obeying the scriptures. There's nothing more miserable than a Christian. If he's a real Christian, he's married to a pagan, the guy's miserable. Who wants to be married to somebody who you know is going to burn in hell? Who wants to be married to somebody who wants to cause your children to burn in hell? Don't even consider it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Solomon. We thank you for this amazing teaching. It's so practical. It's so clear. It's so full of emphasis.
Now, put it in our minds, Lord. Put it in our hearts. Cause us to believe it. Cause us to trust it. Cause us to live by it. Cause us to think about it. So that we can be obedient to your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen.